It's February. Do you know where your bracketologist is? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Jersey Jump Shot, the first and only podcast dedicated exclusively to college basketball in the Garden State. I'm Jerry Carino. With me is longtime colleague Steve Edelson. And yes, we know where our bracketologist is. He's right here, a longtime guest on our podcast, the pride of East Brunswick, one of the very best bracketologists out there. He's the publisher of Facts and Bracks. You can find it at www.factsandbracks.blogspot.com. The one and only Brad Wachtel. Brad, welcome back to Jersey Jump Shot. Glad to be back. Uh, excited for another year of college basketball and another college basketball March Madness tournament. The best conference tournament, I'm sorry, the best NCAA tournament is the best sports tournament there is, period. Yes, can agree more with you there. Uh, Brad worked at, on Rutgers basketball staff for many years, and he's now a teacher. Brad, are you teaching the science of bracketology to young minds? That would be the dream, to be honest with you. I wish I could. Uh, but no, I'm teaching middle school science and computer science and engineering. Um, so it's a different type of ology that I'm teaching, unfortunately. Yeah, could, that's okay. That's important. Probably more important, a little bit more important. One of these days, I'm telling you, the same way there are sabermetrics courses in some colleges, there's going to be bracketology courses somewhere, someday, and Professor Wachtel should be first in line. All right, Brad, let's get right to the chase here uh, with Seton Hall. You know, they're the... They're the Jersey team in, in, in most in the at-large mix bid, uh, at-large bid mix. So 14-8 overall, 7-4 and four in the Big East, tied for third. They have four quad wins. They're 66 in the net as of this morning. You have them as a number 11 seed uh, in your latest facts and bracks, bracketology. So I guess just first off, Brad, why do you have them there? Yeah, so Seton Hall has built up, you know, a nice – number of good wins. Um, that's most important. When, when, the, when the NCAA committee is trying to figure out who's getting into the field, number one, first and foremost, who have you beaten? And right now, Seton Hall owns wins over UConn and Marquette. They also beat St. John's, who's a bubble team at the moment. And they also won at Butler, who right now is in the field. So they have some real good quality wins. Now, I have them as an 11 seed, partially because of their metrics. Uh, their predictive metrics. And like you said, their net is 66. Um, and, you know, their Ken Palm is, is also at a number that's not particularly great. And what we've seen in the past from the selection committee, if your metrics, if your predictive metrics are on the lower end, especially in like the 60s, it's hard for you to get a better seed um, unless you really, really have some dynamic wins. And they have some good wins. Their best wins did come at home. Uh, but they're in for now because predictive metrics don't determine whether or not a team gets in. It only determines a team's seating. So right now I have them in. They're not in my last four in, uh, but they're very close to being in that category. But right now they're, they're in a good spot and they've done a lot of good work um, to put themselves in position to be in at the moment. All right, let's look, let's project toward the future. And you mentioned Kempom that Kempom is 60 as of this morning. So like you said, pretty mediocre there along with the 66 net. Um, so I have they have nine regular season games left. I have the most likely scenario for them as being five and four down the stretch, 
uh, which would give them a 19 and 12 record, 12 and 8 in the league. Uh, assuming they they take care of business at home against DePaul and Georgetown, five and four down the stretch, you know, winning, taking care of business at home, maybe winning one road game. Uh, how do you feel about them in that spot come Selection Sunday or heading into the Big East tournament? Yeah, so five and four, they have five home games left. So if we let's say they won all five games at home, right now, now the the problem is, let's say they won all five at home, and they lost all four on the road, they would finish. Four and eight against Q1, which is not great. Four wins is still a good number. It's still a good number. Four out of 12, not the best percentage, not the worst percentage. It's okay. Eight and 11 against Q1 and two is how they would finish as well. Again, it's okay. So do I think that that would get them in? Probably, but I would not say it's a guarantee. Um, So what what I would say is it's going to depend on how other bubble teams do. We say it every single year uh, because we don't know how that's going to, play out um but i i would lean towards saying that would be enough to get them in um uh, because they'd be getting you know more quality wins over at the at-large field um like like a butler who you know butler got a huge win at creighton which which is big for seton hall uh because any right. big win you get that's you know the committee loves that especially the road wins uh so that's a big road win that maybe seton hall got that people didn't think was going to be a, a a huge deal but suddenly it is a big deal um, so I would say five and four likely gets them in, uh, but in, in an ideal world, you win one of those road games, win one of those road games because it's a Q1 and get another Q1 win. And then you would be in the tournament. So the road games they'll have the, probably the best chance of winning are, uh, at Villanova, which is this coming Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday. And then at St. John's, they play St. John's at the UBS arena on Long Island. So one of those, it almost sounds like one of those would be, if you're going to go five and four, win one of those instead of another home game. You know, obviously you need to beat Georgetown and DePaul, but like it's almost more important to beat Villanova on the road or win at St. John's than it is, say, to beat Villanova at home or beat Xavier at home. Is that fair? Does that sound right? Absolutely. And and to top it off right now, you know, St. John's is in the last four in in my field. So they're right below Seton Hall. And Villanova is one of my first four teams out. So those teams are competing against each other. You know, now the committee, it doesn't head to head only matters so much when it comes to determining who's in, who's out. But to, to you know, get a one up on, on those guys and to knock them down a peg would be very beneficial. So it sounds like those two games at Villanova and St. John's really could be the swing games on their schedule, the remaining schedule. Would you agree with that? Yes, I think they are swing games. I think there's still a chance all three teams can still get in the field uh, for sure. Um, but right now we're at a point where, you know, things are things are very dicey. All right. What is Seton Hall's seed ceiling if they finish strong? By finishing strong, I mean like six and three or better here down the stretch. Yeah, so if we're assuming that they don't win at Creighton or UConn. Right. Let's assume, let's assume that they don't win those games, right? I, I would say the 8-9 game is their ceiling. Oh boy! Um, which is, which is, <laughs> yeah, which is not which is not great, but again, that that boils down to, unless if you want to take a big step forward, they will need to win a game at Creighton or UConn to really get their metrics in a much better shape to to potentially go higher than that. But unfortunately, you know, if the if the majority of their remaining wins are Q two wins, that's good, but it's not moving the needle enough. All right, we're in an interesting spot with Seton Hall because we, you know, back in in, uh, in October, no one thought they'd be in this position. Back in December, 
No one thought they'd be in this position. So now to have to be talking about how can Seton Hall get the best possible seed and not just get in the tournament is an interesting place for them for sure, Brad. And we we kind of feel at this point the way this stuff works that the ends that the conference tournaments really aren't weighted much, right? It doesn't as far as playing your way in, playing your way up a seed line. They're kind of they kind of been ignored by the committee over the past few years. You got to get it done in the regular season. Is that fair? For the most part, I would still say the first two days of the conference tournament matter. Um, so, so again, like who's Seton Hall playing in the first round? Obviously, if you lose to a DePaul or a Georgetown, <laughs> that's that's a significant problem. Um, I think they matter. The final two days don't matter um, unless it's you know revolving around a team that is going to get you know an automatic bid. That's what we've learned over the over the years. Right. Um, but for Seton Hall, you don't, you never want to lose in the first round of the conference tournament. Um, so you want to avoid that. But yeah, the majority of the work needs to be done in the regular season, and they have the opportunities. Um, just get just win games. Just win opportunities. Games. That's the key word is opportunities, and that takes us to Princeton. I Steve has some questions for you about the Tigers and their opportunities. Well, it's interesting, Brad, because, you know, once again, I mean, Princeton emerging as kind of one of these lightning rods for mid-majors, for Ivy League, uh, as they kind of progress here. Um, Let's just say, hypothetically, the Tigers ran the table and and got to the Ivy League final and lost there, finished 23-4. and Um, You know, they, they they would have some quad two wins for sure, um, not sure about quad ones, maybe one. I, what do you, what would you think about their chances of an at-large bid at that point? Yeah. So the, the issue with Princeton, first of all, you know, when they scheduled, obviously scheduling has become an issue with them. Um, they scheduled Rutgers on a neutral site, which is a great game for them. And they won. The problem is Rutgers is nowhere near as good as people thought they might've been. So unfortunately things like that are out of, you know, if you're a mid-major and you only have so many games against high-level opponents, it's out of your hands, um, which which stinks for them, but there's nothing you could do. Now, if they if they manage to run the table and lose in the conference championship, the problem with Yale and Cornell, right now, they are actually, they would be Q3 wins because Yale and Cornell are currently 79 and 81, respectively. Um, Cornell is 79, Yale is 81 uh, in the net. So those are Q3 wins, which means they could finish one and three against Q one and two. Um, and, and in order for Cornell and Yale to stay, uh, to, to get up to a Q two, those teams are going to have to run the table. So we're assuming that those teams aren't going to lose any games, if not more than one game either. So to be honest with you, I think it's going to be very difficult. The one thing that, that Princeton really has going for them is their strength of record. Uh, right now, Princeton's strength of record is 36. And typically, if you, if you want to be an NCAA tournament team, you need a strength of record that's in the top 50, um, no worse than 55. So right now, they're, they're, that number is in a good spot, but that's really the only thing that they have going for them, as, as well as the strong record. Um, so, so right now, I would say it's unlikely, even if they run the table and lose in the conference championship, I'm not going to say that it's, it's 0%, but I'm going to say it's unlikely that they can get in that large bid. Yeah, the the selection committee chair has talked about, you know, taking Princeton scheduling issues into account, you know, when they do all this. I don't know. Is that realistic? Could that be a factor in any of this? It's not a factor. As much as they want to say it, it's it's really not. 
Um, I mean, they're, it, it's unfortunate with mid-major teams that, that are good. Nobody wants to play you. Um, and what can be done about this? There, there, there's really not. And I don't think it's going to factor because the committee is looking at the resumes. They're looking at the resumes of every single team. And if they took every single stipulation that every team had, it, they would never come up with a bracket because everybody's got some sort of, whether it's injuries, whether it's scheduling, um, you know, they don't take, take into account how the team did in last year's NCAA tournament either, which for Princeton's sake doesn't help. Um, but a strong record. It's a strong record. And I think that if that scenario happens, they will be mentioned on Selection Sunday uh, to, to, as a possibility. Uh, but unfortunately, I, I just don't think the inability to schedule is not the committee's problem. I mean, and everything you said, it just sounds like the Ivy League is a one-bid league this year, no matter what happens. If if Princeton runs the table and and, and Cornell or Yale lose in the final, it's just going to be a one-bid league, we think? Yes, I believe it's going to be a one-bid league. You know, it, it's interesting, one-bid leagues. The, in terms of mid-majors, you know, as you look at the teams out there, are there teams that metric-wise could – end up being, you know, some real surprises this year, maybe bracket busters? Absolutely. Um, there's definitely a couple. And, and right now I would mention uh, Grand Canyon would be one team, team that we don't really see in the tournament very, very often, uh, coached by Bryce Drew, um, who's been at the high level. We all know who, who Bryce Drew is, of course, um, famous game-winning shot at Valparaiso um, in, the, in the NCAA tournament. Um I think Grand Canyon's a team. Uh, Grand Canyon, they beat San Diego State this year. San Diego State is uh, is a projected five seed at the moment. We know what San Diego State did last year in the NCAA tournament, uh, reaching the national championship game. Uh, Grand Canyon's 20-2 and two overall. They're 4-2 and two against quad one and two opponents, and they have a top 25 strength of record. Um, their league, uh, the WAC, is not particularly strong. So if they happen to lose another game or two, um, and they win their conference tournament, their numbers will, might drop considerably. Uh, but, but right now, I would, I would fear them. And another team I'll give you is Indiana State uh, out of the Missouri Valley Conference. They're 19-3 overall, top 40 metrics across the board. Um, somewhat similar to Princeton, they don't have the wins. They don't have the quad one wins that could get them in at large bid. But I think they're in a little better spot than Princeton is just based on their overall metrics to getting an at-large. So I'd go those two teams. And then obviously we can't rule out the winner of the Ivy, whether it's Princeton, Yale, or Cornell. Any one of those teams is going to give, you know, whether it's a, a four seed, a five seed, uh, or a six seed, or even, you know, who knows, uh, uh, a fight for their lives for sure. You think the winner of the Ivy League can get an 11 seed? Is that the seed ceiling? I think Princeton can. Okay. I think Princeton can actually get <clears> – I think if Princeton wins out, I think there's a possibility they can get a 10 seed. Okay. Now, you mentioned Grand Canyon, which makes me laugh because I was covering a high school football game in November. This is what it's like to be an AP Top 25 voter. Someone grabbed me as I was walking off the field and said, you got to rank Grand Canyon. At a high school football game in November, <laughs> talking Grand Canyon resume. And I, I love was, it. And I did. I kind of loved it. I kind of loved it. Normally, it's 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 a pain to be pestered, but I thought that was great. So you know what? I did get a look at Grand Canyon. I have not voted for them, but I have looked at them every week. 
since that, that person stopped me on the field. So there you go. I love that you mentioned that. All right, duly noted. A couple of Grand Canyon mentions. Um, let everybody know. So the uh, the Big Ten, you've been kind of uh, circumspect about their prospects. Brad, what are your concerns about that league? How many bids do you think they'll get? Yeah, so right now I have six teams in the field. I got Purdue, Wisconsin, Illinois, Nebraska, Northwestern, and Michigan State. Um, the problem with the Big Ten that I have is how they performed in non-conference play. Um, they didn't win enough notable games. Part of the reason is um, Michigan State was a team that the expectations were very, very high for them. And, and I think they're going to win some games in February and March. Tom Izzo, that's what he does. But they didn't win. They didn't beat any notable non-conference teams. They did beat Baylor, but that's it. You know, other than that, their their resume is is a bubble team. And that's um, hurting the league at large because they were supposed to be one of the standard bearers this year. Correct. So so other than Purdue and Wisconsin, Purdue beat Tennessee, Marquette, Alabama, and Arizona. Purdue has the best resume in the country, in my opinion. Wisconsin beat Marquette and Virginia. And Virginia's a bubble team at the moment. And then you go to Illinois. Their best win is FAU in non-conference play, which is a good win. FAU is going to be an at-large bid. Um but other than that, nothing. And, and and really, that's pretty much it. Northwestern beat Dayton. We, you don't have many wins away from home. Neutral site wins, road wins. Um, and the bottom of the league is, is just mediocre at best. Um, teams that you thought were going to be good are not. Like I, we've mentioned before, Rutgers, um, they had some more opportunities in non-conference play. They didn't perform well. Uh, so unfortunately, I don't see them getting more than six teams. Right now, there's only three teams that are, are, are a lock, and that's Purdue, Wisconsin, and Illinois. Nebraska and Northwestern and Michigan State, right now I'd say are likely going to get in, but they're not locks yet. Interesting. You know, Brad, there's been some talk you know, about how the Big 12 kind of gamed the system by beating up on, on some softer teams. Do you see that? What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll read you some uh, non-conference strength of schedule numbers. Texas Tech, 303. TCU, 334. I, Iowa State, 321. Cincinnati, 297. BYU, 290. Oklahoma, 274. And Texas, 226. Wow. Zoink, so, Scoop! That's bad! <laughs> that's bad. That's bad. Now, what did those teams do in non-conference play? They demolished those bad teams <laughs> and in essence improve their nets all of those teams have really good nets really good projected uh, predictive metrics like ken palm and bpi so did they game the system i think they did i think they were smart in doing so because if you know if, you, if there's two ways you can go about it um about scheduling you can schedule really bad teams beat up on them. And by beating up on them, I don't mean beating up by, on them by 10, 15, 20 points, 20, 30, 40 points, really beating up on them to improve your metrics. That's one route you can go. And it seems like the Big 12 met because I don't think this is just by chance. Um, I think Big 12 coaches, Big 12 ADs met and trying to figure out how can we get the best seed possible? And this is one way that they determined they can do it. I don't have a problem with it. I do have a problem with the way the net is set up and how 
this is like you said they, they've gamed the system i don't necessarily agree with that but they're not doing anything against the rules fascinating all right that leads us into our last question you're talking about different scheduling philosophies uh, and going back to your Rutgers roots, I know you pay close attention to the Scarlet Knights. If you were Steve Peichel with this big-time freshman class coming in next season, what kind of non-conference schedule would you put together? Yeah, so here, here's what I would do. I would love for them to get into a winnable preseason tournament. You know, And at this point, it could be too late for that because I know those are always scheduled years out. Right. But when was the last time Rutgers has played a uh, preseason tournament on a neutral court? I don't think it's happened since Peichel has been there. Yeah, it's been it's been nine or ten years. It's been a, it's been a long time, and I would love to see them do that. And, and and there's reasons why you want to do that. You want to build up your neutral opportunities. Every single year, Rutgers is in the mix for a bid. You always look look at their road neutral record. It's like, why is their road neutral rec- record so poor? Because they they only won two road games. Yeah, I mean, winning on the road is hard. But if you could win some neutral site games early on in in uh, in a preseason conference tournament, uh, I'm sorry, a preseason non-conference tournament, that that does that does wonders for you. Even if you're beating teams that are not NCAA tournament teams, get those numbers up. So that's one thing I would do. The other thing I would do when you're scheduling your guarantee games, your buy games, you don't schedule teams like Stonehill. You don't schedule teams that you know are going to be at the bottom of leagues, like the Northeast Conference, uh, like the America East. Don't schedule teams like that. Now, we did discuss the Big 12 and what they did, gaming the system. Sure, you can do that. Are you going to beat all these teams by 40? They didn't do that. There's a lot of teams they played that were at the bottom of their league this year, and I know the team is going to be different next year. But there's going to be a lot of unknowns. So I would suggest... Uh, playing teams that are that are going to be picked to to finish towards the top of their leagues, you know, like the Vermonts of the world. That's always at the top of their league. You know, who's going to win the NEC? That's that type of stuff you can figure out because beating those, winning those games, it's going to help. It all is going to help your net. Uh, and then obviously, if you lose to a Q4 team, that that implodes everything. So that's another thing that I would do, and and I would do that every year. It's not just the year with this incoming class. Um, the other thing I would like to see them do is, is playing a high level game at a neutral site. And for, you don't, you want to do that for multiple reasons. Again, it's a neutral site game. And what you would like to do is see where your team stands. Um, you know, you're supposed to be very good. Let this, don't let the schedule prevent you from getting a better seed. Um, look how the big 10 turned out this year where there's only five or six teams that are going to be in the field. Imagine if you put together a schedule like they did, you know, let's say last year, where you didn't really beat anybody of note. Now, all of a sudden, in the Big Ten, there's not many opportunities. You could still win 13, 12, 13 games, but your seed in this NCAA tournament is limited. And what's the goal for Rutgers next, next year? People have high, high goals with that right. incoming class. So the bottom line is, you know, Steve Feichel has done an excellent job, but you have all the job security in the world. Don't be afraid to lose some games in non-conference play. Um, it could happen, but with the two, you know, two of the top three recruits in the country, your team is going to get better as the season rolls along. So I think get one of those high majors at a neutral site on the schedule. Let's see where we stand up and, and, and take it from there. And I think that would put them 
in a very good spot um, for next season. Interesting. Out of all those things you suggested, I think the most likely is the last one. They're, they're, I think they, I could see them playing like a Madison Square Garden one-off showcase, like in a Jimmy V Classic type of setting uh, against a big-time you know program, maybe even a Blue Blood. We'll see. A lot of a lot of discussions to come on that stuff. But yeah, that's good advice. Now you have to go teach uh, computer science class, but thank you for teaching us for instructing our audiences on the finer points of bracketology. Brad Wachtel, factsandbracks.blogspot.com. You can also see him on the Field of 68, a national podcast, but he always makes time for his local guys because, after all, he is a Jersey boy. Brad, we will see you back in March, of course, to talk March Madness and revisit all this stuff then. Thanks, as always, for coming on the Jersey Jump Shot. Can't wait. Thanks so much for having me again, guys. I'll see you soon. All right, fellas, so it wouldn't be February without hearing from our bracketologists. A lot of interesting nuggets there, boy. Steve, he really, he really went into the weeds on your question about the Big 12. He was prepared for that stuff. <laughs> he was, and those were great numbers, really telling numbers when you look at that, that non-conference strength of schedule. Holy heck. Kind of blows up the whole purpose of the net. The whole purpose of the net was to encourage strong scheduling, and here's the Big 12 doing the opposite and working. It's crazy, crazy. All right, let's talk Rutgers. We'll pick up where we left off. Um, with Rutgers, and it's been a wild week for Rutgers. They get embarrassed at home by Penn State. Uh, then they go and well, they get a they add two players, including one Jeremiah Williams, who gets a court order to overturn his gambling related NCA suspension. The court overturns his suspension on Friday, twelve uh, twenty within twenty four hours. He's on the court helping Rutgers rally from 15 points down to win at an imploding Michigan program. And also Emmanuel Ogboli joins the Scarlet Knights, a backup center who's been hurt. Uh, so really wild week for Rutgers, and they have a wild one ahead, which we'll get into. But we'll bring Chris Eisman in now, who's been keeping a close eye on the Scarlet Knights. Chris was there for the disaster on Wednesday against Penn State. Chris, what do you make of what's going on with Rutgers over the past few days? Well, I mean, the, the game against Penn State was just a, a total uh, mess, you know, all around. I mean, they just—they're just not a good scoring team. We know that they don't shoot the ball well, um, and that's a problem. And we saw it, you know, against Penn State. Penn State took advantage. Obviously, the turnovers were a major issue. That's what Penn State does well. You know, they—they they, they force teams into into turnovers, and Rutgers was certainly susceptible to that. And and you know, they paid the price, and and they just—they couldn't you know, do what they had to do on either end of the floor and, and it took its toll. And it was, it was a really bad home loss. And it was one of those that kind of afterward, you're, you're left shaking your head wondering how did that happen? Um, but, you know, certainly, you know, that's kind of the, the, the state that Rutgers is in right now. It's kind of, you don't really know what you're going to get out of them from game to game. Um, but yeah, that was, that was certainly, you know, we talked about afterward, Jerry, that was a bad loss. There's no doubt. One of the worst losses of the Steve Peichel era, not to be to be not com non competitive against a mediocre to bad team. Although Penn State did have a good week last week, Chris, when they when when Rutgers falls down fifteen at Michigan early in the second half, did you could did you have any inkling that they would win that game? No, no, I didn't. I, I figured that the, the Penn State game was just going to kind of leak into that one, and you know right. the, the, they were going to remain winless at Michigan for for another season. I, I didn't think that they were going to come back. Um, but credit to them, they did, and, and they got a you know a solid road win. Let's talk about the challenges and the benefits of integrating new players in them. It's really unusual to bring to add two, introduce two players into your rotation, one in the starting lineup, 
These guys haven't played in a year and two years for Jeremiah Williams. They haven't played in a game. What is that? What can that potentially do uh, to add with one month to go, five weeks in the season to add a new player or two? Well, I mean, look, you know, I, I think it's definitely going to be a lift. I think, you know, Steve Peichel has been talking for weeks about kind of getting these reinforcements in, right? So this is, you know, to, to kind of bolster that depth, it's significant. And Jeremiah Williams, both guys are certainly people that they were counting on from the start of the season. Obviously, that didn't happen. Um, you know, now you, you kind of put them in. And, and I think there's a lot of this is like what, what the future can look like, right? I mean, what's we know where right. the season's going. It's not going into the NCAA tournament. So what can you get out of Jeremiah Williams? What can you get out of Bowley? You know, to see what kind of you know how they can kind of impact things uh, going forward. Um, you know, that's I think that's what a lot of this is going to be about. But certainly, there's definitely going to be some I'm sure tinkering by Steve Heichel to, to kind of see what the best lineups are and you know how he kind of wants to fix his rotation. But you know, as we sit here on February 5th, you know, there's still a few weeks to do that. So that's definitely going to be interesting to kind of see how he continues to to you know shake out his rotation. On that note, Chris, and you've covered basketball at all different levels, high school, college, and the NBA with the Knicks, a 10-man rotation in February. It's very unusual, but also, as you said, maybe there's an eye toward the future going on here. Like you want to you want to audition some guys or get get them experience under their belt um, for down the road. What do you think of Steve playing 10 guys? I don't know how many other high major coaches are playing 10 guys right now. There can't be many. What do you think of what he's doing rotation wise? Yeah, it is kind of interesting, I, I, but I, I do think that there, you know, he has said, I think he said after the Penn State game that he's not worried about the future. You know, he's not worried about, I, he says that, you know, but we can kind of look towards that, right, on the outside. You know, I, I think it is interesting, but I think he, he's kind of, like I said, he's trying to see what works. And I think that Rutgers is still in that stage where they're trying to figure out like what's going to give them the best chance to win. And, Jerry, you've written this, you know, several times this season that it's just, it, there's been a lot of experimentation to kind of see what is this team. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of what, what's driving a lot of this is is just, I mean, it, it's not, it's just simple. It's just what gives Rutgers the best chance to win right now. Steve Piper feels like that's what he has to do. That's what he's going to do. A couple more Rutgers topics real quick. Jeremiah Williams, you know, wins his lawsuit. And he, uh, Seton Hall guy, Kevin Marino, is representing him. It's funny how that works. Of course, you know, Pat Hobbs was Seton Hall's dean of dean of the law school. So there's a lot of connections there. But, but uh, the – so last month we saw Terrence Shannon, Illinois' All-American guard, sue sue for an injunction. Uh, he had been suspended for accusations of sexual assault. He sued and won. He was reinstated. Jeremiah Williams sues for a shortening of his gambling-related suspension. Judge reinstates him. We've we've seen this happen at a few other places this year. Um, it seems like the, and Rick Pitino even says after the after the St. John's loses to UConn, he's talking about all the challenges that the college basketball is facing. And he says the NCAA's enforcement committee might as well just pack up and, and fold and not exist because what they say has no weight. And he's probably right. He's probably right. What do you, what do you think of this? And are you worried about the future of college sports or about the future of the NCAA or about the future of being able to have any rules at all in this, in, in uh, men's college basketball? I think the NCAA as a whole is about ready to pack up and go home. I mean, it, it, they're just, losing a lot of i don't know i mean it's just in, in so many ways it's just it seems like such a toothless organization that doesn't really have any power and still kind of trying to figure out like i don't know it's just it's a very bizarre situation but like you said earlier when you get a court order to be able to play a basketball game i mean like imagine saying that a few years it's just it's just very i don't know it's just a very odd situation and all the way around but the ncaa is just kind of losing these battles all over the place but again maybe that's kind of a continuation of what we've been seeing for a while now that things are falling apart and they're trying to figure out 
kind of how to hold it all together and they're not doing very well. Steve, you worried about uh, the future of college sports? Well, I think it's part of the ever-shifting landscape that you see in college sports in, in every sport. And, uh, again, you, there's so much talk about – you know, the, the, the top schools breaking away from the NCAA and, and, and things like that. And listen, I, I think I think this is all kind of steps in that direction where, you know, who knows where it's going to end, but it's going to be different and it's already different. And if you if you project five, 10 years from now, what it's going to look like, I'm not sure any of us have any idea what that's going to look like. That's a good point. I will say the NCAA does two things, right? It, has, it runs tournaments and it has an enforcement division. The enforcement division seems dead, but it's this tournaments are still alive and well. Someone's got to run the tournaments. It's a very important job. And so that is a function that people forget. They want to disband the NCA or break away. Well, how about the tournaments they run? And also, Steve, you mentioned like the idea of these football, you know, schools, power five, whatever you want to call them, power, whatever, it's shrinking, breaking away. You can't you can't have a legitimate uh, college basketball championship without the Big East. And really, you can't do it. I mean, can you really do it without the mid-majors that make this tournament so great and give it all this publicity? So I don't know. There's a there's a golden goose there, I think, a piece of Americana and a financial golden goose that you're messing with with that. So I do think the NCAA has utility in terms of running the tournaments, especially the tournament. But obviously, it's enforcement division that's collapsed. And you're right, Steve, nobody knows. But I do worry about the future of college sports. Uh, and there's just so many – there's so many athletes and so many sports and so many lives that college sports affects beyond just college football and men's basketball. And so you do worry about that. I am concerned about that. So I thought the whole lawsuit thing, even though it's good for Jeremiah Williams it does and Rutgers, it does worry me just in general. The, the trend worries me. All right. Well, two more quick things on Rutgers. Um, good to see Derek Simpson play well. 19.6 assists. Uh, sophomore guard. I think Jeremiah Williams' addition helps him. Uh, you know, it'll be a good backcourt made for him. And I want to just counsel patience about Derek Simpson. You know, the Rutgers fan base is, is a small but vocal segment, very opinionated about him. The guy's a sophomore. He's a real sophomore, no red shirt, no post-grad. Uh, you know, what did you expect when Derek Simpson came into the program as a three-star recruit coming from a public high school? Did you expect that, you know, that you were getting Magic Johnson? Did you expect that he was going to be Quincy Doobie? He's already done a lot for the program, but he, he this is a developmental situation. And so I would caution patience, someone who's been thrusted into a role that was not foreseen for him when you had Cam Spencer and Paul Mulcahy, you know, bolting out the door late in the offseason cycle. Some might say stabbing their program in the back. Um, so Simpson's been thrust into this role. And so I would counsel patience and context and, you know, the guy's learning. So I think he – has a chance to be a key part of what they're building next year as a leader and a piece to the puzzle. And, you know, he's getting some real experience this year running the team. So I would counsel patience there. I know that's not the strong suit of any fan base, but I do feel strongly that some patience and context are in order. I wanted to get that off my chest. Chris, one more thing on Rutgers. Week ahead at Maryland and our old friend Kevin Willard, who's desperate to win this game. Maryland does have a shot at the NCAA tournament. They have to beat Rutgers at home. And that's Tuesday. And then Wisconsin, a top 10 team coming in Saturday. What do you think of Rutgers week ahead? It's going to be a tough week, no doubt about it. Obviously, as you said, Jerry, I mean, Maryland's going to be, you know, a tough team to beat on the road. And then Wisconsin, 
you know, we've seen who they are this season. So definitely a tough week. It's, it's you know, I, I think Rutgers has, you know, if it, if it does everything well, I mean, uh, this is kind of simplifying things, but if it does everything well against Wisconsin, it'll give itself a shot. But certainly going to have to play a lot better than it did uh, last time. So there's no doubt about that. If Rutgers wants to make it the postseason, we're talking NIT at this point, then you, you really should go one, get a win, get one win this week. All right. Uh, Steve, moving on to Monmouth. They had really kind of a, a roller coaster week, right? They had a big win at home and then a close, tough loss on the road. Take us to tell us where Mom is at right now. Yeah, it was. You know, I mean, listen, Drexel's in first place. They've been really the best team in the CAA all season. Uh, and Mammoth knocked them off on Thursday at home. It was a, was a you know, really a, a defining win for this team. And then they just couldn't keep that momentum going at Delaware. They've struggled on the road. They have not won since beating West Virginia in West Virginia on November 10th, nine straight on the road. Now, listen, they've played some tough teams on the road, but at some point you know, they're going to have to step up and figure this thing out. And and that's, I think is the biggest thing moving forward for them. Um, but listen, Monmouth, they're five and five. It's a tightly packed uh, CAA standings. You know, they got eight games left. They're still in good shape to get a good seed in the tournament. You know, I, I think the biggest thing with Monmouth is, I mean, Xander Rice has been brilliant. He really has been. You know, against Drexel, he scored 14 straight points late in the game. Amazing. To, to lead that comeback. You know, he scored 16 straight late in the game. In fact, Mama's last 16 points to beat Northeastern. You know, he beat Hofstra last weekend with two seconds left. He had 30 at West Virginia. You know, he's sixth in the nation in scoring. The, the question is, can they do enough around him to make this all work? And right now, they're young kids. They're not quite there yet. They're close, but, you know, they got four weeks left. Um, we'll see if they can grow. But, you know, really, Xander Rice has been unbelievable. Can they do enough around him? Xander Rice is a strong candidate to win the Haggerty Award, which goes to the best uh, men's college basketball player in the metropolitan area. He, he may well be in the driver's seat. Kadari Richmond, I think, is right there, too, from Seton Hall. But boy, Xander Rice has just a tremendous and having a, just a tremendous season. Steve, why is what do you account for Mama's home road splits? Like, why are they so much better at home on, than on the road? Well, again, I mean, they they played some tough tough road games. You know, they they lost at at Cornell, they lost at Oklahoma. You know, they they lost at George Mason, which is you know one of the best teams in the eighties. Right. They you know. And they lost at Wilmington and Charleston. So, yes, there's that. But, you know, they lost at Stony Brook, too. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, I think it's it's going to be the young guys kind of maturing and being able to go away from home and, and and do that. I mean, they're top seven. They got three freshmen and a sophomore. So those guys need to come along. Uh, there's only so far Xander's going to be able to drag them this year, I think. How was the crowd at the Drexel game? The Drexel game was good. You know, they they had about twenty five hundred. It was a it was a, a it was loud. Uh, so th that really that really helped. Beer garden or no beer garden? Uh, you got you beat me to it. Okay. Uh, all right. Let's talk Mac really quick. St. Peter's is seven and four in a three way tie for second in the Mac. The three games behind surprising Quinnipiac, who they visit on Thursday, and. Uh, Tom Pecora, who's been around the block a few times, Steve, he's he's uh, he's done a great job. He's he's a coach of the year uh, in the uh, leader in the clubhouse in the MAC. Riders five and six and continues to be a disappointment. Can they get it together for three days in March? We'll see. Iona is six and four. 
And look out for Tobin Anderson, Steve. We've yeah. seen this act before. Iona is on the move. You, If you had to plunk your money down right now, Steve, yeah. what do you think of Iona's odds of winning the MAC tournament? I tell you what, I I, w- I wouldn't bet against them. Listen, that that was a big win over Ryder, right? I mean, they they, they had that game. Ryder came back on them, and they held on and won that. Um, listen, it's Iona, right? Uh, who, whoever's been there, Iona has been at the top of that league for you know fifteen years now. So, um, right. someone's going to have to knock them off. All right, we got to throw Tobin a bone. We know he's a big fan of the Jersey Jump Shots, and he's been a guest of ours before. So, all right, there you have it. Thanks to bracketologist Brad Wachtel. It's February. Time to start thinking about March. Gentlemen, good stuff this week. More good stuff to come. Thanks, as always, uh, listeners, for joining us on the Jersey Jump Shot.